Welcome back to Cottonmouth Manchester, the City Centre podcast for Manchester and Salford, brought to you by Cityco, the City Centre management company. I'm Vaughan Allen, and today we're talking once again about culture. I nearly said we're talking to cultural venues. We're not talking to cultural venues. We're talking to the people who work in them and run them. Uh, I'm with Esme Ward, who took over as director of Manchester Museum in April. April. So uh, going on five, six months. Um, This podcast, in fact, has been around so long that uh, back in episode 12, which was well over a year ago, uh, we talked to her predecessor, Nick Merriman, who has now moved on. Uh, But Esme isn't a stranger to the city or the museum, having previously been head of learning engagement for both Manchester Museum and the Whitworth, having originally set up the Whitworth Education Service back in, according to your biog, 1998, which is a while ago. She's also the lead for making Manchester an age-friendly city, which I I want to get to and I want to discuss quite a bit. Um, Esme, to start, Give us a little bit about your background, but also why the interest in museums? Okay, so um, I didn't go into a museum until I was 19. Uh, They just were never part of my life growing up. And then when I did, uh, it it sort of changed everything for me. So actually I went into what then was known as Tate and now is Tate Britain. Uh, I was terrified. Absolutely, all those what columns. What motivated you to go in? Um, so I was studying and uh, I was sent by the person. Uh, yeah, I was completely <laughs> coerced. <laughs> completely coerced. Um, so I, I went in and uh, I went up the terrifying steps past the columns. Um, and once I'd got over my threshold anxiety that I still have when I go to places, um, uh, I encountered this world. Just this, it, My world expanded, essentially. And I never really quite looked back. Um, so I have worked in museums. Uh, whether they are art museums or now encyclopedic museums like this, all my life. Um, And what I was particularly fascinated with um, wasn't so much my connection to the extraordinary works on the walls, which is wonderful. I was just so curious about everyone else and what they were encountering. So for me, it's always about that encounter between the people and the stuff. That's what makes my heart beat faster, is what, what meaning is being made here? What, what are these people feeling? What's going on? What, what are they learning? Um, so my background has always been in uh, education, learning, working with communities. And I suppose from those earliest days, just a real interest in people who've never been to museums. So that sense of, that's why inclusion is so important to me, that sense of actually uh, who knows what you'll encounter and where it might lead. So, I mean, it's quite an interesting appointment in a way, not only Mm. in-house, which is still probably rarer in the museum and cultural sector than it is in in maybe the corporate world, where a a deputy Mm. succeeding is is, Mm. is a very obvious one, but also not from a curatorial background Mm. as such, from a learning learning background. It's still really rare. Um, So in-house is very, very rare. Um, And although I did disappear for a while, I I travelled I got a fellowship, I went all over the shop. Um, Actually, I I definitely was in-house. So I worked at the museum for seven years. Um, But also, I've never been a director of a museum. Uh, They've never had a woman running the joint in its 127 years. Um, And it's still really rare. It's usually curators and often actually, a bit like Nick, often archaeologists um, who run organisations like this. Particularly for this this. sort of museum. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so I absolutely, we have 4.6 million objects in this museum. That is a lot of stuff. Uh, I am hugely interested in those objects. But actually what really makes my heart beat faster is thinking about the potential of this museum as a site for learning 
civic engagement, social action, and actually working with those specialists, with those curators, with those educators, with the visitor team, all these different people to just make this place alive, not a kind of arc of dead uh, animals or a, or a tomb of dead cultures, uh, how it's a living, breathing, relevant place. Actually, that's our work. I mean, having worked in museums, as, as you know, and I'm I try in these podcasts not to go off to down too many alleyways of technical stuff and discussing what's happening in the museum world. Um, but I, I've always found it fascinating that it tends to be a curator that gets that top job. Yeah, and yeah. museums are obviously more than just storehouses. So that yeah. engagement thing, obviously yeah. there are some creators who are, are utterly mm-hmm. stunning at that yeah. engagement thing. Yeah. Uh, but it's almost been accepted that those are the people that will mm-hmm. ascend to the top jobs. Do you think that's changing a little bit at the moment? So I think it is. I think there's a real shift. I think, you know, if museums are just about the stuff, I'm not sure the future's looking so rosy. Um, and actually, you know, museums are, uh, they are also about people and they are about the future. So everyone, I think, thinks that if you work in a museum, you're obsessed with the past, which in a way you are. Uh, but actually in caring for the past, you're just really staking a claim in what's going to matter in the future. And so in my experience, I think there is a real shift. And I got a CLAW Cultural Leadership Fellowship. And part of, I think the reason I got that fellowship was the CLAW Leadership Programme is thinking about where the next generation of cultural leaders are coming from and what background they have and what skill set. And actually the reality is for a job like this, you don't need in-depth knowledge of geological collections or zoology or, you know, Egyptology. What you need is you need to be able to develop collaborations. You need to increasingly be able to work beyond your sector. You need to be a very strong advocate. You need to be imaginative. And you absolutely need to be able to work across a whole host of different contexts with different people. So I think it's, it's a very, very different skill set, actually. And, but it's also, I, I guess, uh, appointing from within, appointing somebody who is actually in, t- in charge of learning and engagement, um, something from your your board and directors, mm-hmm. the appointees, uh, sort of a stamp of recognition that things were going in the right way, that that level of what you do in terms of the community, in terms of learning, was actually the right way that, that the museum should be going. Absolutely. And um, uh, no, obviously worked with Nick for years and I think did an absolutely brilliant job. And I'm so excited because so much of what I can do now, I can only do because of all the work that happened before. And I, I suppose it's, a, you know, I worked on the Whitworth and the transformation at the Whitworth. And a big part of that was really opening up to the city and building new kinds of connections and relationships with people. So I think you're right. I think it is it is that recognition. I also, I, I love that it's, I'm homegrown. You know, I started as education officer at the Whitworth. I, there's probably not a school in Manchester I haven't visited at some stage in my career. And I, I think someone who knows a place um, and actually has a relationship to the place and, and long-term partnerships this museum is very, um, very deeply loved uh, by many people. You know, everybody, when I go and meet people, they often say to me, oh, my toddler, you know, or my, my baby perfected their crawling technique on your museum floor, or God, my toddler was obsessed with Stan. You know, we are a, absolutely a university that does research and we are part of the university, but we are also an extraordinary place for families and, and we're part of people's growing up. Yeah, the, the, on, the ongoing conversation about whether Manchester needs its own story of Manchester Museum, mm. but actually uh, both here and I guess 
MMSI as well because they they form so much of people's memories mm. and thoughts as as children and then as, as parents they are sort of the soul of the city to some extent absolutely so I, I mean I just I, you know I had a brilliant taxi journey so I was heading wherever I was going and I was chatting with my taxi driver and he picked me up he went oh you're the director of the museum bloody love that place uh, and I said why and he was telling me, so he was saying that his family originally were from Bangladesh and that he goes regularly with his kids. And for me, he summed it up better than anybody I've ever heard. Um, I want to offer him a job because I'd be great in our marketing team. Um, but he just, he said really simply, he said, you know, so it's really straightforward. It's free. I learn. My kids become better citizens and you meet the world. And I thought it was pretty good. That's a good set of <laughs> slogans, isn't it? Um, Talking about you, you sort of mm. taking up the post, you sort of said stepping up from, mm. from head of learning to being a director. Um, I mean, the other thing that a modern museum director has to be able to do is, of course, all that commercial stuff. Mm-hmm. And well, there's a, a huge element of commerciality yeah. to what you do in, in terms of yeah. learning. So is that, has that been a steep learning curve for you? Are you relying on other, other people as well to, yeah, to, so- to get, gather that experience? I mean, it is a steep learning curve and it's, it's great. I love it. Um, and, and part of the thing for me is, you know, I'm in a museum and we have extraordinary staff here. They're incredibly talented, but also we're in the city. There are all sorts of people working across the city that we aren't connected to yet. So part of it for me is, I, I suppose I see it as a collective endeavour. And we, the transformation we're going through here, I always have this vision of who our fellow travellers are. Um, and, and actually, I kind of, uh, I was chatting to somebody yesterday and they were like, you're going to need a bigger bus. <laughs> Um, because actually there are all sorts of people and supporters across the city and for me the reason I've loved a career in museum learning is the potential to be really imaginative and to try things and I've, I've probably been in the last two years to about 150 museums all over the world. Uh, and, you know, and you go to museums and you see the places that are being really imaginative, they're being enterprising, they're trying things, they're opening up. They're the ones where they are truly loved. And I think my job is actually really straightforward. It's to make this museum more loved, but actually more widely loved by more people. So to do that, We've got to be more enterprising and find, you know, if you do what you've always done, then you get what you've always got. Cool. And you're not doing what you've always done because there's a huge capital build underway. That means the entranceway is in a different place. The cafe is currently closed and various other things. Um, So what's the process for that? How long is that going to take? What will people see at the end of it all. Yeah, so um, this is the bricks and mortar stuff, but actually it's uh, it's part of a bigger transformation. So uh, the cafe is currently closed, but a new one is opening soon on our top floor. Have to get that in. Um, so we have currently uh, partly closed half of the building to enable us to essentially build a brand new two-storey extension. So what was previously the courtyard at the heart of the museum where you used to enter the museum, that will have a two-storey extension within it. And on the ground floor, there will be an exhibition hall, which will be one of the largest spaces in the north of England to do hopefully jaw-dropping exhibitions about uh, the uh, human cultures and the natural world. Um, And the idea with those exhibitions is, you know, we are in a university, we can draw on all sorts of research, but also we do look internationally. So the show we're going to probably open with will be an international show looking at the impact of climate change upon animal migration across the world. And we're working with all sorts of people, New York Climate Museum, a museum in Rio, and one of 
things we've realised is we can bring the world to Manchester. So there'll be an exhibition hall. Uh, on the first floor, there will be a new South Asian gallery. And the South Asian gallery is a landmark partnership with the British Museum. And uh, it's undergone quite a transformation in the last few months. So this gallery's always been planned for a long time now. And uh, it's, it's hugely exciting. It's got performance space at the heart of it, which is very, very different. Most museums don't have that. But also what we've got in Manchester and Greater Manchester is we have this fantastic diaspora all these communities. So the whole of the space is going to be co-produced and co-curated with those individuals. And so in partnership with the British Museum, we're kind of bringing world-class collections and lived experience together. So we'll have a South Asian gallery that I think, we're, well, we're very excited about, do things very differently. Uh, we'll also have a new Chinese culture gallery. So we are, we are definitely looking worldwide. And that's really about unearthing some of the great stories about Manchester and China's relationship with each other, but comes from a, a gift from someone called Dr. Lee Kai-hung, and the gallery will be in his name, because he's so interested in how we can explore understanding between the UK and China, and really develop empathy. So again, a really interesting way to explore um, Manchester's relationship to the world. Uh, new entrance, of course, and um, a new shop and actually really upping our game when it comes to our commercial potential and just in development a new international centre for age-friendly culture. We'll come back we'll to come so, back so, to so what's the timeline for that? So the timeline, so we're partly closed now. Um, uh, we will open in, I love saying this, we will open in June 2021. Not too long then. I, in the museum world, which it must be said can be glacial, um, uh, in the museum world, that's tomorrow. <laughs> and in the meantime, you're presumably trying to keep open as many galleries as you can. Yeah, so what we've done actually is we've gone back to nature. So all the galleries that will be open, you will still be able to see Stan, who is our absolutely fabulous T-Rex, uh, all of the natural history galleries, the vivarium, our live animals, and we are reimagining and redeveloping our top floor. So one of the things that has really struck me with museums in the last few years in particular is it's almost like we do some of our most interesting work behind the scenes. And people don't know. So what you see when you wander around the museum, it's like the ta-da, there's the final product. But actually there's all this work that goes on behind the scenes that's almost more interesting to many of the public. So we'll be opening a new space called the conservatory, which will be full of conservators. And actually there will be works being conserved and you'll be able to come and help us conserve works and find out about that. Um, and we'll just start sharing a lot more of our thinking. And when we're developing ideas for exhibitions and prototyping them, we want to do that with people. Um, there'll be a new cafe up there and there'll also be a very beautiful greenhouse. So we're just slightly rethinking what our top floor will be. So we're definitely open, but um, I'm afraid it's farewell to Egyptology, archaeology and anything man-made. Is that for now? Or for, for now. For the mummies will return, I promise. Every museum has to have a mummy. Yeah. So it's a huge amount of work going on till 2021 mm. then. Um, on the sort of the, the less building-y side, mm. how would you like to see the museum evolve? I mean, that's going to keep you busy enough, I should think, getting the yeah. capital build. But. You see, I think the, the capital build will, of course, do that. But I think, in a way, that's not really the work. Um, so for me, it's about how the museum becomes more open. So we've said very publicly we want to be known as the UK's most inclusive 
imaginative and caring museum. And in part, that looks like um, the new spaces we open being multilingual. So we are going to be thinking about how we bring in other languages in everything we do. But also, you know, we've got 4.6 million objects. That's so much stuff. And being partly closed gives us the most fantastic opportunity. What are we going to do with it all? So one of the things we're exploring at the moment, and we will be launching next year, um, I'd asked all the staff here to think about I'm going to tell you a slightly crazy story, but anyway, it's, I was, had a dream, this isn't a Martin Luther King moment, I had a dream that I was in the aquatic centre swimming, back and forth, and as I got out of the pool, um, I came face to face with the Manchester Museum spider crab, so it used to be in our window here, huge Japanese spider crab, uh, which is ridiculous, obviously, and I was living and breathing the museum. But actually, it's also rather wonderful because what I kept thinking was, God, it's like the spider crab has gone to find its nearest water source. And so I was asking all the staff here, you know, we have so many collections. What if we liberated them? What if we set them free? What if Manchester became our museum? Where would things go? So over the next couple of years, while we're closed, that's what we're going to be exploring. We're going to be thinking about how do our collections go all over the city to find new relevance and meaning? And what might that look like? You know, does our polar bear go to the chill factor uh, to uh, feel snow under its paws again? Um, you know, there, there are all sorts of different ways. Do we have cranes on top of cranes? Because they always go to the highest place in, on the skyline. And God knows Manchester's got enough cranes at the moment. Um, do we think about objects going back to source communities? potentially even being repatriated. We could get very political. And that's one of the things is these are the city's collections. They are owned by the university, but actually they were always for the city. So when the museum opened in 1891, it was presented brilliantly, I think, as an appeal to the civic spirit, the scientific curiosity and the devotion of the townsfolk of Manchester. And actually, our job is just to reimagine what that means today. And that's about more people connecting to those collections. I think it's really interesting when you look back at the history of museums. And again, mm. I'm getting a bit dweeby here. Uh, but the first museum in this, in this country... Uh, Sorry to Elias Ashmole, but uh, was the Royal Armouries, of course. Um, and that was deliberately created as a set of displays to impress foreign visitors. And that was the, f the first use of display. Uh, and then came the Ashmolean, which obviously for your, your, it was rather more than a penny, I believe, originally. Um, you could go in and see your cabinet of curiosities as it was. Um, and I've always found it fascinating that when you talk to curators of a certain type, early 20th century curators particularly, there, there was this idea, there's this idea of purity and the mm. purity of the object and how it should be displayed with absolute accuracy in two lines and blah, blah, blah. But actually, the history of museums has always been one about engagement and display and showing off and absolutely. telling stories that may not be absolutely of the truth as well. That's that narrative absolutely. thing has been part of it. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I kind of think we're in Manchester. So Manchester had the most extraordinary museum called the Manchester Art Museum that was in Ancoats. And I often remind people of this because I think we, we talk a lot about the radicalism of Manchester. And actually, uh, I think we've got a long way to go because, you know, back in the 1890s, there was this art museum Ancoats that was open till 10 every night. It was next to workers' homes. It had a poor man's lawyer in the foyer. It had a juvenile employment exchange at the heart of the museum. You know, these are things that museums are doing today that they feel are really revolutionary and, and, and actually none of it's new. And we had a curator of botany here at this museum called Leopold Grindon, who, um, who had 
both set up all sorts of uh, publishing and all sorts of new groups because he passionately believed in the beauty of flowers. Uh, but he also distributed wildflower seed all across Ancos. So he was guerrilla gardening back in the early 20th century. You know, so I think in a way it's that, that, that it's useful to look back to think about how we look forwards. And here we're re it's really simple. We're here to build understanding between cultures and a sustainable world. And actually for us, what that means is stepping up. So we do want to be more active. We, we, we are really interested in working with charities and organisations that share that vision. You know, we should be, we did a rubbish night at the museum and it brought together activists and researchers and residents in Moss Side and Hume who really cared about rubbish. And we got the policymakers in and the waste officials and they came up with a plan and 400 people came on that night. Real Junk Food Manchester did great food and actually the convening power of a museum like this to make change is what museums in the city have always done. I think we've just slightly lost sight of it. Yeah, and I think yeah, it's been interesting with things like the art gallery, the, the long conversation over the railings and whether the railings should come down or not, whether they're seen as a way of uh, keeping people out, which yeah. is may may or may not have been the original reason they were put up, but now rather as an architectural gem. Um, I th and I think it's always fascinating, given talking to people in the university, both both universities, in fact, um, that the the big change over the last 10, 15, 20 years has been to open themselves up to the communities around them. MMU probably less so than mm -hmm. university because it, it yeah. already was. Yeah. Um, it's not to put it down. But the university's architecture even was actually to cut itself off from Mosside and Hume and, and the local communities. Yeah. Whereas the you guys, yeah. you've always been open because that's yeah. part of your job. So even if the university wasn't seen as as, as yeah. anything for the local community, which they now want it to be seen, um, the, uni the, the, the museum has been the stalking course to do that I guess yeah and and you know I mean one of the things so if you I I've, I've visited this museum for oh God, years and, and with my when my children were younger I came with them and one of the things that I particularly loved as a parent was yes you come and you see awesome stuff absolutely but you know what often there would be researchers there sharing their research with your six-year-old. So, you know, they were researching why T-Rexes can't run, for example. I mean, those are things that are absolutely brilliant that, from my perspective, only a university museum can do. So last Friday, we did a researcher's night and the whole museum, was, it was just full. And it was full of people having a great night out, having a glass of wine or a beer, but also hearing some of the most exciting research going on in the university in this context. So I think you're right. We are absolutely a way to engage both communities and the research, but bring them together in a way that hopefully just makes it live. I, I asked Nick this, so I shall ask you. I didn't give you any notice of this one. Um, pick, pick out a couple of your favourite objects. Oh, you see, that's so mean. Okay, uh, so actually, one of my one of my favourite objects, um, and sadly it's not currently on display, is a um, a watering pot. So it's a ceramic watering pot, and it's um, I love it because I'm a gardener. Um, uh, but it, it's quite large. It's probably uh, just over a foot tall. Um, it's ceramic. It was it was found in London. It's from. Uh, uh, 1700s um, but what I love with it is for me it sort of brings the collections here together because actually what's quite I think fascinating with this museum is it's genuinely encyclopedic 
there's probably, in fact, at some point we need to do a call out for to try and find a subject that we haven't got collections related to, because I, I don't think we'll manage it. Um, so um, what I love is it, it absolutely speaks to the fact we have a herbarium, so we have plant collections, but also it is our, it's, it was from an archaeological dig. So it's a find. Um, it speaks to people in the past, but it also speaks to a sense of the future. It was used so you can actually see the thumbprint of the people who've made it. Um, and you can handle it. And if you wanted to, you could use it uh, here and now. So I love that object for the way, for me, it draws on both the natural world and the kind of human cultures. Uh, and they're all located in this one incredibly beautiful but also highly useful object so for me that's that's a winner um and, and if something I, people can identify with as well yeah yeah and actually so the other thing is from a design perspective it's absolutely brilliant because it doesn't look that different from the watering can i use at home which now might be you know tin or plastic or you know whatever it might be you can absolutely see through in terms of design and i suppose i love you know i'm i'm i love to think about who would have held that? You know, what, what stories would they have had in their lives? Where would it have been used? What was that garden like? Was it even a garden? You know, all of, it just takes me into those spaces. So it's great. That's excellent. I was, uh, I, think, I think like most people who've worked in museums, uh, absolutely adore the pit rivers. And one, one, one of the things that I, I stood in front of probably for about an hour um, is they have a display of string. Uh, and of course, um, the idea of having a string or twine bag uh, for very early humankind was the way that you moved objects from one place to another. Um, and uh, uh, it was almost, I mean, it was suggesting in the display that after the invention of fire, that the invention of string or twine was almost the most important next next thing. And it was something that had never occurred to me. What, what you know, sort of thinking back to my, my, my grandmother's, you know, old string bag that she'd take shopping, that's, saying, that's exactly the same design that... 25,000 years before was being developed on riverbanks you know, yeah. and, and those sort of moments when you look at something that however however old and go actually I can yeah. see the entire path through is, is, is where you make the connections yeah people. and I think that that perspective that, that museums can give you so you know I, I, I often um, we have a lot of we have amazing volunteers we have around 150 volunteers at the museum and they have these handling tables so these are collections that you absolutely we encourage you to touch um, and you know one of my favorite you might be holding a coin, a Roman coin, uh, you know, and actually just that connection to thinking, God, what did this pay for? Did it pay for a pig? You know, what, what was the use of this? It just instantly connects you and gives you a whole other perspective on your place in the world. And, and for me, it's, it's why I love museums. You know, they make, they make my understanding of the world more complex. Uh, and I think that's a wholly good thing at the moment when things can seem very black or white. Um, yes, getting that long-term scale of things is, is actually quite useful at the moment. Yeah, I think, I think so. When things are really tough, I head to the geology gallery. <laughs> Um, a final one, and again, it's a bit museological, so apologies to listen to who are music. And one of the big debates within museums, and I guess within society at the moment, is um, as so much of our life is is moved online, mm -hmm. as so much of a, you know, we, uh, I think the phrase is, we exteriorise our memory through social media and mm -hmm. through through whatever. And how does that affect what you collect now and what you're going to be collecting in the future? I mean, there's almost far, there's presumably 100,000 times more information than anybody could ever want about any, anything or anybody. Um, but there's useful things. I, I remember the debate at MoMA when MoMA started, at New York MoMA, started picking up um, pop videos mm -hmm. as expressions of art and, and they had to go through a whole thing of what they were going to use. Yeah. 
Uh, and it, you know, obviously at the, initially there was a bit of a snobbery and it wasn't, wasn't going to be anything that was a hit, but then you saw a Michael Jackson video and it's like, well, you have to have that in. Um, so how, how are you picking that apart and, and how will that impact on what you collect going Yeah, you- so it's really timely. So we've just had a morning, actually, we've had a, a kind of a morning about digital, uh, all, all sorts of different people from across the museum and Manchester Art Gray and the Whitworth coming together and thinking, doing session about digital thinking, actually, all of us collectively, and really exploring exactly these issues. So my honest answer is, we don't know. Uh, and actually, I think that's right. I, 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 I worry when people have a neat answer because, you know, the world does not stand still. You know, we were ta- I, I was talking this morning about, you know, toddlers, I'd heard them described as generation swipe. You know, that is, that is the reality. And for me, this is all around how museums can open up, be more responsive. And actually, the way we do that is, is sometimes through collecting. So one of the things we collected um, fairly recently was a life jacket from Lesvos. Um, and we didn't just collect that life jacket because we've been collecting around migration. And so a colleague went to Lesvos a few times, actually, But it isn't just that in isolation, because it can't be. It's also the films with people who have been affected by the uh, refugee crisis. It's taking the bigger picture. And for me, I think we've, we've moved from the object in isolation you know everything now becomes about context and I think what we haven't really done yet is 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 um found a mechanism or a way we're catching up how we do this and I don't think we trust people enough so one of the things I was talking about you know if let's just think about how we open up and why aren't we inviting people in more to give their responses and their perspectives even if they make us feel really uncomfortable you know actually this is all about us gathering more insight and I spend a lot of time when I came into post looking at the archives from when the museum opened and it's just so interesting there are snippets of paper there are you know committee reports that everything is archived and documented and the side conversations that on the face of it might look nothing actually to me now a hundred years on they're really invaluable. Uh, and actually, I, you know, concerned that we lose that. So uh, our, we have a show that's opening in November called Heritage Futures, which is going to be looking at exactly this. It's going to be looking at profusion. It's going to be looking at, we've got so much stuff. How do we prioritise? Should it be us prioritising? And I think these are, you know, I've been thinking a lot about museums at the moment. I think they aren't problem solving, we're problem finding. Uh, and I think that might be a good place to be. I guess that's that's reflective of the, of the world we're in, where actually questions of identity are now yeah. so crucial to an awful lot of people's lives, and, and museums provide a lot of that sense of identity. I think that's, um, it, it's interesting, again, not blowing my own trumpet, uh, but it was one of the challenges we faced at Urbis mm-hmm. when we wanted to look at pop, popular culture mm-hmm. exhibitions. And it's like, how do you get over the spirit well, Hacienda, um, but we deliberately sort of tried to put that in aspic a little bit. Um, but when you talk about the history of hip hop in the UK, mm-hmm. how do you get over that sense of being a fan? Yeah. Um, and having been only last week, not to diss them too much to the British music experience in Liverpool and seeing everything in glass boxes and presented as, you know, there is no experience there of being a fan. It's, it's presented in a very cold and sterile way. And when actually museums are moving far away from that. And I, and I think that, that ephemera, 
yeah. uh, is is often very very important. Uh, but it's how you collect that because you can collect so much. Uh, yeah, so, but it's also popular it, history. People's History Museum has the same issue with badges or whatever. Absolutely, yeah. but I think it is also about the design. You know, the design is massively important. So the glass boxes is a massive issue for museums. It's going to really have to get its act together, I think, because of course we. You know, I talk a lot in this museum about care and what that means, and I absolutely have a responsibility to care for collections and do but I also think we've got a responsibility here to care for people and ideas and relationships and you know the word curator comes from the Latin carare it means to care for and actually our notion of what that care looks like is changing and design is changing so one of the reasons that we have a performance space in the middle of our South Asia gallery is to generate new knowledge new narratives and it's a real design challenge we're going to have to find new ways of doing things we wanted to. I wanted to talk a bit about the age-friendly yeah. stuff as well. So, I mean, generally, how well do you think uh, Manchester does in, in a city in being accessible to people of all ages? Um, what do we need to do more of? Mm. Uh, what do we need to do less of? <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. The genesis of the age-friendly work in Manchester, actually, it started uh, back in 2009. Manchester was awarded age-friendly city status by the World Health Organization. I think what's almost more interesting is where that came from. So it actually, originally, the idea about we want to be an age-friendly city is absolutely aspirational. Just for the record, this isn't saying we're there, we've done it. Um, but where that's come from uh, actually was a real set understanding that Manchester was growing younger. Uh, so um, and, and that lots of people reached retirement age and if they could afford to, they were leaving the city. They were going elsewhere, they were taking all of that expertise their money, their, um, their connections, their relationships, they would take, it was leaving the city. And so actually people started thinking, well, this is crazy. <laughs> we are losing one of our greatest assets. And what interests me with the age-friendly work as an aspiration, and I think it's really bold, is it's, it's essentially, it's trying to rewrite the story of ageing. So, you know, often the story of ageing is one of about deficit and loss. You know, you read about bed blockers or, you know, a million and one things. Actually, it's, 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 not, it's not saying that you might not eventually get ill. Of course, it's a reality. But what it is saying is if you view ageing as this asset, what might that bring to your city? So I would say... In one way, we're doing great because we've had nearly 10 years of a level of collaboration and working together that is quite extraordinary. There are all sorts of programmes across communities within the cultural sector. There are over 100 culture champions who are advocates for and shaping the kind of work they want to see in the cultural organisations in the city. In another, my God, we've got a long way to go. So, you know, when you think about the challenges around transport, around growth within the city, around get off the plane at Manchester Airport and you see fantastic images of the city. You really do, you know, and I can pretty much guarantee that it's young people in every single image and that can be deeply alienating. So I think we, we are in the midst of trying to reconcile an ambition around you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 40s. I'm thinking, what, what's the city I want to grow older in? There's quite a lot of self-interest in this. Actually, what does that look like? And what do we need to do? What opportunities are there? Um, 
And I think we're starting to get there, but we've got a long way to go because this is about a a mind shift as much as some of the practicalities. I mean, part of that, I guess, is, I mean, particularly in the city centre, which obviously Mm. is is where we're we're involved, is um, people have traditionally moved out. If you go back to the 90s, we only had 700 people living here anyway. Um, But people have moved out when they reach their 30s, when they want a garden or whatever. but you're gradually seeing a change. So, so developers are starting to look at townhouses. They're starting to look at actually other environments. And obviously, as the city centre spreads into Ancoats and spreads yeah. west, you, you'll see. One of the interesting things we have seen is, particularly in areas like Castlefield, we've we've seen sort of the grey pound coming back mm-hmm. in. Yeah. Might sell their bigger houses um, when when kids have left yeah. home and then yeah. actually move it back in to go to theatre, to go to museums, which which I think is really an interesting move and pos- probably one certainly wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. It's just something that's happened. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that there's much acknowledgement of that group and of what their needs are, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, in the physical infrastructure and how that. Does. I, I, but I think it absolutely resonates when we we talk about Manchester as you know this vibrant city, this world city, this young city. Um, and you're absolutely right in in terms of the demographics of marketing material for a new development. Um, Ethnic spread is is usually represented these yeah. days, though yeah. you can still see someone. You you sort of go, is it only white mm. people that are going to visit mm. your new development or whatever? Um, but age, yeah. yeah, it has to be trendy young things from seventeen through to about thirty yeah. at the absolute max, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I, I, you know, I think it's interesting. So I've been, you know, uh, if you go to Tokyo, so uh, in Japan, Japan is where the UK will be in twenty five years in terms of the demographics, and I, I've spent a bit of time there looking at how their responding to the challenges around aging and the opportunities you know and it's always the two but some of the more deliberative things they're doing they're really interesting you know what does co-housing look like you know I was in one part of, of Tokyo where there were two um two secondary schools closing a week and three care homes opening you know, that, that's quite some uh, statistic. And so actually they were really starting to think long and hard about what does this mean? What does this mean for our notions of what family are? You know, right across the piece. And I think it, it means taking a really long, hard look at ourselves. But actually, the thing I like about the approach in Manchester is it's, it's really thinking about the best people to help shape this are the citizens. So if you take that asset-based approach, it's them involved. So there is an age-friendly design team. They're really interesting. They're going to be working with us on our project here. And they are bringing their experience. Quite a few of them are architects. That's really... And designers as well. But actually also they are bringing that lived experience. So I think for me, there's that sense of how we don't... This isn't about top-down. You know, you can do loads of stuff to people. God forbid you can do it for them, you know actually the shift is how do we do it with them and I think if we can start to do that then actually we will we will be getting somewhere yeah I remember seeing a really interesting project in um, the Netherlands of course mm. um, where uh, students who couldn't actually afford housing went into a co-sheltered housing yeah. yeah which wasn't which was amazing yeah. when you read yeah. about the experience yeah. but obviously the, the article wouldn't cover the, where it didn't work yeah. those relationships but the relationships between the young people and, and the elder people with whom they shared flats or shared floors yeah. um, so much was given from both mm-hmm. sides and and we talk a lot and this is being recorded on um, World Mental Health Day um, you know we talk a lot about the problem of loneliness and mm-hmm. particularly elder loneliness mm-hmm. and one of the solutions to that it's a lot easier to find solutions to that it would strike me in a city and in a city centre than it is out in the countryside yeah. where traditionally the, the elder generation might have gone in their, in their retirement. Yeah, and it, I, you know, it's interesting against a backdrop where, you know, kind of civic infrastructure is 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 looking a bit ropey, you know. I mean, they, they, I was talking to somebody last year and they 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 
said to me, you know, well, the post office is closed, the housing office is gone, everything now feels like it's online. Uh, actually, those opportunities for me to engage with my community, where do they exist? And I think for me, as somewhere that's running a cultural organisation with a civic responsibility, that's a, that's a really useful challenge it's an important challenge for us to actually really think about what is our role here what what can we do and it's why we have so many different programs it's why we do mobile programs because actually i i think it's what culture is for which is an excellent point to end on i think thank you very much thank you to Esme. to our friends at salford's blueprint studios who'll be editing the final track and we'll be talking more about all of these areas in future podcasts. If you've got any comments or ideas for things to cover, talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR and give us a review if you have a moment.